The recent Anthem Incorporated hacking breach, which affected about 78.8 million individuals in several states, included people who weren't even members of Anthem's health plans, but were rather members of other Blue Cross and Blue Shield plans in other states. The Anthem incident spotlights how complex a situation can get when a covered entity has a breach that affects victims in many, many states, some which often have privacy or breach regulations that are stricter than HIPAA's rules. I'm Marian Kolbesek-McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Brad Rostalski, a privacy and security attorney at the law firm Reed Smith. Brad will discuss some of the issues that come up in health data breaches when it comes to the interplay between state laws and federal HIPAA regulations. Hi, Brad. Hi, Maria. Now, Brad, for starters, is it rare when a health data breach doesn't involve victims in more than one state? And typically, what happens when a health data breach does affect victims in many states? I wouldn't say that it's rare for an incident to either involve or not involve folks in more than one state. It's, it's really just a question of how large it is and what kind of entity is involved in the breach. There are innumerable situations that I get calls about and that folks are dealing with that are kind of smaller, one-off situations like a misfax or, or some other sort of smaller incident where it's going to be one state because the provider or the business associate through the provider is only dealing with folks in one state. But that being said, the, the more and more we're storing information on portable media, flash drives, obviously laptops, smartphones, etc., and we've got folks that we're providing services to across the borders of states or if there's a provider or business associate dealing with providers that are close to the border of a particular state and folks might cross the border to get treatment, like southern New Jersey and Pennsylvania, for example, folks are often going back and forth to different healthcare providers across the bridge. It's more and more likely that there are going to be multiple states involved. And when that happens, you know, obviously everyone's first thought is, okay, we've had this incident. We need to determine whether or not it's a breach under HIPAA. But, you know, state law is not often something that folks think about immediately, maybe more so today than before, but still it's not the first thought. And it should maybe be uh, right up there with HIPAA in terms of what we're thinking about. So, Brad, with that said, how should organizations prepare and plan for breaches that potentially affect victims in many states? For instance, do organizations need to become experts in the privacy and breach notification laws in the states near them or in every state? What should they do? I think you hit the distinction there. I would say that kind of the approach differs based upon how large a patient population is. So if you know that you're only dealing with patients or individuals in two to five states, it's probably worthwhile to get a sense of what the obligations are under those states' laws. And generally speaking, I guess probably a good time to dovetail into what the differences are, but before I do that, it's the larger institutions and the larger businesses that deal with folks across the country that have maybe a bigger challenge. And the last thing any client wants to hear are are the words 50-state survey, but generally speaking, not a bad idea not necessarily to do that, but to make sure that the folks you're turning to for advice and for help are already aware of what all the states require. And as with all breaches, not just the state law issues, 
but anytime you're dealing with an incident that could be a breach under state or federal law, it's really important to make sure that you're reacting quickly. Obviously, there might be some some requirements in business associate agreements or other agreements that you have with customers that impact how fast you need to tell a covered entity if you're a business associate, and it's important to be aware of that. But generally speaking, with some exceptions within the states, the regulations all pretty much say, tell the people that need to be told as fast as you can. Even HIPAA, which has the, you must notify without unreasonable delay, but in no event greater than 60 days after discovery. A lot of folks focus on the 60 calendar days after discovery bit, but the government's been pretty clear in clarifying that what they really mean is, do it without unreasonable delay, i.e. as fast as you can, but if you take longer than 60 days, we're definitely going to say that you're too slow. There may be times they've been clear that 45 days could be too slow, depending upon the facts and circumstances. So the more states you have involved with slightly different triggers for when notification must occur and different thresholds to consider, it just means that a lot of the conversations and analysis involved before you get to the notification might take some more time. So the faster you can get to someone who who can tell you what the rules are for the states you're dealing with, the the better position you can find yourself in in terms of making sure that you comply with the notification requirements because, frankly, especially if you're a business associate who is sitting here with an incident that needs to tell their covered entity customers about, you know, not just from a regulatory perspective but also from a business relationship perspective, you want to make sure that you're following either the contractual and or regulatory rules in terms of notification. And, and this goes for covered entities as well. The first easiest thing to do to avoid kind of an additional unnecessary problem with the government is to make sure that you comply with the notification rules, leaving aside the fact that there might be some underlying issues associated with the breach that, that spark a conversation with the government. If you're good on timing for notification, it gets everything off on the right foot in terms of the conversation you're having um, with the government and even with the customer. That being said, different states approach things differently. I mean, under HIPAA, it's any impermissible disclosure of PHI. So covered entities and business associates are aware of what PHI is generally and there's kind of a general appreciation of when something is an impermissible disclosure. Worth highlighting just for a moment that as a result of the HITECH Act and the, the final HITECH rule, a lot of folks refer to it as the omnibus rule, you know, the breach notification rule that existed in an interim final form for many years was changed in a few significant ways. And this final breach rule's maybe most significant change or how the definition of breach was changed. So prior to the, the final rule, in other words, under the interim final rule, sorry for all of these uh, just fun descriptions of the rules here, when something happened, you had to determine whether it was a breach or not. The, the interim final rule said look at the potential harm that could have affected the individual. And covered entities and business associates were allowed to and, based upon the rule, required to undertake this risk of harm analysis, whether it be financial harm, reputational harm, or any kind of harm at all that the individuals might have suffered. And for certain breaches that weren't all that sexy and didn't involve Social Security number and were really kind of one of those no harm, no foul sorts of situations, very, very likely folks would say it's no harm here. There's no sensitive there's no embarrassing information at play. No one's reputation will be maligned as a result of this getting out there. There's no risk for financial harm, identity theft, etc. Why freak people out for no reason? Unfortunately, and fortunately, depending upon who you talk to, 
that was changed when the final breach rule came into effect as a result of the, the final high-tech rule or the omnibus rule. So we went from this focus on the individual under the interim final rule to a, a focus on the affected information under the final final rule. And basically, any impermissible access, use, or disclosure under the privacy rule is now presumed to be a breach unless the business associate or covered entity can demonstrate that there's a, quote, low probability that the PHI has been compromised. And the government's given us four factors to consider in determining that and maybe a little bit outside the scope of what we're talking about today. But suffice it to say that there is no clear risk of harm component any longer. And arguably, there is no risk of harm component any longer, even though there's some some interesting language in the preamble that, that maybe you can glom on to kind of infuse a, a slight backdoor risk of harm consideration. Now, with all that being said, the state laws are pretty uniform and also pretty unique in certain types of categories. Some allow for a risk of harm approach. Some don't. So, And I, I typically call those that don't the technical breach states. So you've got a state that, that says, here's what a breach is, if XYZ happens under state law, and there's no ability to consider the harm. So if you have a technical violation of that law, it's a breach, you need to report it. Others allow for the risk of harm approach. Not surprisingly, I call them the risk of harm states. And they allow for more of a, a decision to be made. Now, the interesting challenge can be when you're when you're looking to decide who to notify and what your exposure considerations are, there are some incidents that under HIPAA are a breach, but under a risk of harm state would not be a breach. And, of course, the state attorney general's office, you know, even though on paper you don't need to notify, some feel very strongly that they get a courtesy notification. And even when they don't, you'll have individuals that are in that state that are, that are receiving the HIPAA notice call the state AG because that's what they're kind of trained to do, you know, through the, the years and years of breaches having occurred. They know that's something you can do, a place you can call. And the state AG will, will then make contact, and most of the time it goes away when you remind them, hey, look, this isn't a breach under state law, et cetera. But it, it's, there's still conversations to have, and you want to be prepared with an understanding of what the state law says. So not just a, a substantive issue, it's also a, a logistical issue. You know, some states have specific form requirements for these notifications, certain elements that need to be there. HIPAA certainly does. So, you know, you need to understand if there's a state that would require notification in addition to notifications being required under HIPAA, you don't want to send two notifications. So it's going to be one letter that covers both, and sometimes one letter that covers multiple states, and you need to make the decision which elements do we want to put in every version of the letter and which elements do we want to kind of only include in certain letters because you don't want to have to say X, Y, Z to everyone, just say that to the people in ABC state. So there are those logistical considerations. And then to make it even messier, as I mentioned earlier, HIPAA says that there's an impermissible use or disclosure under the privacy rule of PHI, it's a breach, subject to certain exceptions. Under state law, it's both more narrow and more challenging in terms of what the trigger elements are. Most of the time, it's only a breach under state law if you've got first name, last name, or first initial last name in combination with social security number or driver's license number slash state ID card number or an account number, credit card number, et cetera, in combination with any required security code that you need to access the account. So under that threshold, in a lot of instances, if you've got a breach where it's 
first name, last name, and just pure healthcare information, diagnosis codes, etc. But no social, no driver's license number, no account number. It's not going to be a breach under state law, but it would be under federal law, very likely. Then there are states that include additional trigger elements, and some of them are similar to what you would have under the federal regime, but will specifically say trigger element in this state necessarily includes health information. Some of them specifically say it includes health insurance information. I think there's one state where they specifically say that you know, mother's maiden name is a trigger element, which kind of makes sense in terms of the way a lot of financial institutions allow you to identify yourself to them. So understanding when it could be a breach under state law based upon the trigger elements that are applicable and then how to run the analysis under each state in the context of this large HIPAA regime, it can be a little bit unwieldy. It's certainly not rocket science, but it's important to get it right. And then little nuances between the states. In certain instances, you have to notify the state AG and certain times you don't. Certain states require that you notify the various credit bureaus. Other times you don't. There are a number of states where you have to notify a particular faction of the state police if you believe there's been a breach. Others don't. Interestingly enough, I think almost all, but not all, almost all of the state laws are only applicable to electronic records as opposed to paper records. And HIPAA obviously applies to both. So it's important to understand that if you've got a paper breach, which maybe isn't happening quite as frequently these days, but still happens, certainly. And, and maybe it's, it's important to remember the low-tech exposure is still out there. But it, it's, it's worthwhile to, to appreciate that very likely state law doesn't apply, but it's, it's good to double-check. So now, in the wake of the Anthem breach, there's states, including Connecticut, that are reportedly considering legislation that requires that health insurance companies encrypt personally identifiable information. Now, how might these various state proposals and rules about encryption compare with HIPAA when it comes to encryption? Should businesses that do have customers or patients in multiple states have an encryption policy based on whatever the strictest state says in order to cover all their bases? Or what do you advise these organizations to do? New Jersey just passed a similar law, and I think Massachusetts has had law on books for quite a while. There may be some others. Generally speaking, and, and, and I most recently looked at New Jersey's, in, in terms of kind of compliance preparation, if you're going to be a business associate to an entity that is required to encrypt, it is very likely, if not entirely likely, that the that your customer is going to require that you do that also. It's going to pass through. So it's important as, as a business associate to entities that have this encryption requirement to be aware of that and, and kind of start thinking about, if you don't do it, thinking about how, how you can start doing it. Um, in terms of, in a general approach, beyond that, HIPAA, includes encryption as an addressable component. And, you know, that doesn't mean you can ignore it. You can do it if you want to do it, but it does mean that you need to have a really good reason as to, as to why you're choosing not to encrypt. I think these days encryption comes in different shapes and sizes and, and can address different aspects of what's, go, what's happening. There's encryption for a laptop that's being moved around and there's encryption for email, et cetera. So there are different solutions, different types of, of exposure to the information but in, in many instances, especially when it comes to encrypting laptops and other portable media, flash drives, et cetera, the, the solutions aren't incredibly expensive, and I think they're fairly common. So to not encrypt a laptop these days, though technically not required, it's almost a de facto requirement, and, and the Office for Civil Rights has, has kind of alluded to that in, in different places. You know, I, I feel like just 
pragmatically, if you're not encrypting your laptops and your other portable, portable devices, it's just a question of when you get hit with something that, that could have been avoided. Other than that, it's just going to be a question of, with respect to email and, and other things that are a little bit more challenging to, to maybe implement in a user-friendly way, it's looking at the different solutions out there and getting a sense of what your customers, patients, etc., will, will be okay using and to what extent there's a need. I feel like having the encryption conversation is an important one to have, and it's not something to be brushed over lightly. I don't know that these some of these state laws dealing with the insurance companies necessarily, uh, they, they might at a minimum be a really, really good indicator to the rest of the healthcare community that additional requirements might be coming. And it wouldn't shock me at some point if uh, the Office for Civil Rights came out and said you need, just need to encrypt. So, Brad, just to sum up, what what are your top tips for healthcare organizations in terms of them sorting out the privacy and security rules of various states in order to properly protect against a breach and then especially responding to it and notifying? I still think the training aspect, specifically in this instance, making sure that folks know to report something that they've been told about to the privacy officer ASAP, that, that's going to be really, really important because if too much time goes by after someone other than the person that committed the breach or the incident finds out about it, but it's not the right person within the organization to really get things moving in terms of an investigation, that entity is going to be behind the eight ball. So making sure that folks know who to talk to as soon as possible about anything they discover that, that might be a breach is, is really critical because it can save you weeks. And those weeks can be really critical. Other than, kind of, as I've mentioned, getting a handle on what some of these laws in the states play in require, another thing that, that might be prudent is to, in advance of anything unexpected happening, develop some relationships with vendors that can help you. Now, there are vendors out there that will help disseminate the, the notification letters for you and that can help with the media notification requirements if it it's a really, really large breach in different jurisdictions. They, they've got this information. They know who to contact to get things to the right place so it can save you time and some heartache. There are vendors out there that can help set up your, if you choose to do credit monitoring for folks, and I don't necessarily think that you need to offer that right away depending upon the facts and circumstances, but it's, it's certainly a mitigation offering that folks often usually do if social security numbers involved. Having that relationship set up in advance is good. In addition to the dissemination of the notification letters, it's the same people, but there are folks out there that will man the call centers, help facilitate responses. Certainly alerting, depending upon the size of your company, alerting the owners of the board to the issues that, that exist in advance of a problem so that if something does happen, it's not the first time they've heard of it, that it's a possibility that they might need to deal with this. If you're a public company, that your shareholder relations person is at least part of a meeting from time to time about this issue so that they're prepared to at least speak in a somewhat educated fashion about the issues and then you don't have to spend too much time getting everyone up to speed. Those sorts of things are really helpful. You know, obviously, you know, having policies procedures in advance of something happening, not only required, but pretty useful, making sure that people are trained appropriately on how to handle these things and they understand what the the process is going to be. And having a strong privacy officer slash security officer is almost a necessity these days. Thanks, Brad. I've been speaking to attorney Brad Rostalski. I'm Marian Kopasek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.